You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national, international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via those wonderful people of the Community Radio Network, which allow the Anarchist World This Week to be broadcast across Australia. This program is streaming live around the world and Mars. I made that up, I'm sorry. It's streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access it by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. I'm responsible for any electoral comment I make. That's right. Sue me. I don't give a shit. And But more importantly, this program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. Bucket loads of tears are not enough. Buckets of tears are not enough. I've seen a lot of tears this week. I mean, being a medical practitioner, I've been a medical practitioner now for 47 years. I have never seen the public health system under so much strain. It's not just about COVID-19. It's about the fact that the resources, human resources and also physical resources, infrastructure is not there for a viable public health system in an era where we have increasing uh, an ageing population with uh, chronic health issues. It's becoming exceptionally difficult and whether it's an eight-year-old child who dies unnecessarily in a major hospital in Melbourne or whether it's uh, somebody who commits suicide because they've just had enough of the way they've been treated by the public health sector. Uh, The issue is broader. It's not just a personal issue. It's a broader issue. It's an issue about what is important in this country today. What is important? If anybody's been sick, especially if you've been really relatively seriously ill, You know how important it is to have a well-staffed, well-resourced public health sector which can look after you. Even if you've got private health insurance, you'll find that if you've got major problems, you end up in the public health system. And even if you've got private health insurance, you will find that there are many, many fees and charges which are not covered by that private health insurance. So having access to health care, including dental care, is fundamental, fundamental in any civilised society. And as I said before, I've been a medical practitioner for 47 years. 
I've worked both in the private sector and the public sector, and I have never, never, never seen the public health sector under so much strain. Obviously, the imposition COVID-19 has had on the public health sector and the aged care sector has had significant consequences because it has highlighted how this sector has been running on the smell of an oily rag and the goodwill, and that's it, the goodwill of the people who work in that sector. And that's the key. There are so many broken people, so many people with post-traumatic stress disorder who've worked in the health sector, private, public, the aged care sector, who have given their all in order to ensure that people who are under their care receive adequate, if not first-rate care, and they burn out because they have no support, no support from the institutions they work in, and they find themselves doing more and more and more in a system that has less and less and less. And there are buckets of tears. Every day there are buckets of tears as people wait for necessary surgery, as they wait in accident emergency departments, as they die unnecessarily because of issues within the health sector. Now, everybody does the best they can. People don't work in the health sector or the aged care sector because, you know, they want to kill people because they're cruel or they don't want to provide any health care. They're there to do the right thing. But what happens is because of the structural inequalities, because of the way it's structured, because of the lack of resources you begin to see the system unravelling. And as the system unravels, people who have spent decades working in the system leave. I've had enough of this. the personal pressure and stress they're placed under in order to ensure the system continues to chug along. So we are at a crisis point. And when I see Mr Morrison and Mr Albanese and the rest of the state leaders strut around, you know, talking about spending $19 billion in Victoria to build a bloody underground rail system. And I see ambulance ramping, people committing suicide because they can't get access to adequate care. People dying needlessly. And I see the state governments, you know, allocating a few billion dollars to sort out the problem or they're allocating billions of dollars to build a bloody in Victoria, in Melbourne, an underground railway network. You begin to understand how priorities are so mixed up and they're mixed up for a very good reason. And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. And I tell you this every week, and you know this, and I'm sure you're bored with it, but I'm, you know, it needs to be repeated over and over and over again. We live in a rich country. Unfortunately, it is not the size of the cake which is a problem in Australia. It's how the cake is divided. 
1% own 40% of this country's resources. 30% own 1% of this country's resources. And the rest is shared. Think of it. 1% own 40%, 30% own 1%. But there, isn't, there doesn't seem to be this urgency in the political, social and cultural debate. It's all about the Pavlo, Pavlov's response to the hip pocket nerve. Once again, we're seeing this current federal election campaign being hijacked by that, by that small section of society that owns the means of reduction, distribution, exchange and communication, aided and abetted by the legacy media and social media in this country. If you think the election of Marcos's son in the Philippines highlights the manipulation that's going on around the world in terms of people's ideas, aspirations, you don't look, need to look at the Philippines, just look at the situation in this country. 1.2 million children living in poverty from a population of 25 million people. Private charities raising money to ta send Australian kids to public primary schools, let alone secondary colleges. An aged care sector in total shambles. We are enjoying the legacy of the privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, deregulation, revolution. And we can continue to see a focus, not on the 30% that own 1%, but the 1% that own 40% and the investment class, the 10% of Australians who have currently disposable income to invest and use this country's investment-friendly laws, franking credits, credits, negative gearing to augment their income. So we do need major change. And electoral politics are just is just one instant. A federal election is one instant in time when people have an opportunity to change a government. I didn't say change their lives, but change a government. Because unfortunately, as you've seen during this election campaign and previous election campaign, debate is dominated by the corporate-owned media and the government guild at ABC. And to a significant degree, by social media. But this so-called social media debate, which is supposedly a debate between you know, equals and individuals has now been corporatised. These are privately owned corporate platforms. We're really not interested in the buckets, loads of tears, the buckets of tears that we're currently seeing in this country. They're more interested in the inane, the peripheral, the ephemeral. So welcome to Australia 2022. Ten days towards an election. Now, look, as I said before, I'm, if you listen to this program in Victoria, I'm standing as an independent Senate candidate in the ungrouped section in the Senate paper. And I have a slew of policies 
And uh, one of the policies I'm particularly interested in, which uh, very few people seem to be interested in, is the citizens-initiated referendums. And I'll tell you why. We have a constitution in this country which basically has held this country back since Federation in 1901. It's a constitution which regulates the relationship between the states and the central government, and we saw it come into play during the mandates and lockdowns, the various mandates and lockdowns by various state governments during the COVID-19, the initial stage of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is still not over, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we saw the nature of the Constitution. I keep saying ad nauseum on this program. The Constitution has no protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. The only right you have under the Australian Constitution is the right to freedom of religion and occasionally the right to fair compensation if if you're a landowner and your land is acquired by the state. Nothing else. But we have a constitutional arrangement which only allows Parliament and Parliament alone to set questions to the Australian people regarding constitutional change in a referendum. And those questions which have been set in the past in the majority of cases are questions which centralise power in the hands of the federal government and which do nothing to address the exploitation inequalities which exist in this country. Nothing. And unfortunately, for constitutional framework, where only parliament, only the government of the day that has a majority in both houses of parliament, can set a question to the Australian people regarding constitutional change, constitutional change does not occur. It does not occur. And if it occurs, it's superficial and irrelevant. So what is a citizen-initiated referendum? This is nothing radical. The Swiss have had citizens-initiated referendums for decades, and you wouldn't call Switzerland a centre of revolutionary activity. It's a very simple concept. Say if 10% of citizens sign a petition during a fixed period, say a six-week period, that they want a question put to their people regarding a specific issue, well, that question is put to the people. Now, a lot of people are concerned that with citizens-initiated referendums, that the Clive Palmers of the world can dominate the debate and skew it one way or another through advertising. You resolve that issue by passing legislation which limits limits the amount of resources each side has and ensures that the resources each side has are equal regarding that particular question. The thing about citizens-initiated referendums is that it bypasses the parliamentary deadlock. It allows people to change the constitutional arrangements. Now, a lot of people are wondering why the Uluru Statement from the Heart is based around, apart from truth-telling and discussion towards treaties, is based around the concept of a voice to parliament which is enshrined in the Australian Constitution. It's very simple. 
When ATSIC was created by a federal government, it was abolished by another federal government, and that voice to parliament disappeared. And obviously Indigenous Australians are a little bit more intelligent than the rest of us, and they understand that in order for something to have any validity in this country, it needs to be enshrined in the constitutional arrangements. And that's why they want a a referendum, not a plebiscite, but a referendum regarding a Indigenous authority that doesn't rival Parliament, which, which actually can advise Parliament and which can't be abolished by the government of the day. Now, over the decades, yes, I've been broadcast for almost four and a half decades. I think it is four and a half decades this year. Over the decades, I've spoken ad nauseum about the fact that public assets do not belong to the people. Public assets belong to the government of the day. And when the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, was it put the question put to the people in a referendum? No. When Qantas was privatised, was it put to the people in a referendum? No. When Telecom, today's Telecom, was privatised, was it put to people in a referendum? No. When Medibank Private was privatised, was it put to the people in a referendum? No. When the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory was privatised, was it put to the people in a referendum? No. When the airports were privatised, was it put to the people in a referendum? No. Because the government of the day, theoretically that represents the interests of the Australian people, has the power to sell at any time any public asset without going to the people. It's a little bit like you thinking you own that lovely table, that lovely dining room table of hue and, you know, hue and pine that you've had there for generations and somebody walks into your house, takes it away and says, thanks, mate, you don't own it. It actually belongs to us. It's the same concept. So if we want, if we want our essential services incorporated into the, to be owned by the people if we want the public health system to be owned by the people, we need to have a mechanism via which we can incorporate their ownership in the Australian Constitution. That means if a future government wants to sell a people's bank, they have to go to the people and ask them, do you want to sell your asset? And if the people say no, that's the end of the question. And that's why citizens-initiated referendums are so important because it protects the population from exploitation, not just from the corporate sector, but the government of the day. For example, you could have a referendum about future mineral deposit developments in this country. You put it to the people, do you want them to be publicly owned, publicly managed? Or do you want the private sector to continue to own and manage resources and pay peppercorn rent? peppercorn taxation and obviously if that goes to a referendum and the citizens initiated referendum it passes it means that future mineral resources development in this country on this continent and the islands around this continent will be used to look after the interests of the Australian people not the interest of shareholders 
not the interest of CEOs that are paid in the millions, if not tens of millions of dollars per year, but interest maybe of that 1% that owns, that 30% that owns 1% of this country's resources. What a radical idea. So, what do you do if you live in Victoria and you wish to vote for some of these policies? Now, if you go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public, or go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website, you will see all these policies listed. And I've been asking people with minimal success to share the material. It was bad enough wasting $2,000 to find myself on a ballot paper a metre long on the far right-hand side, under the line in the ungrouped section, let alone wasting good money, killing trees, you know, to letterbox people. So the material is there. Look at it. If you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it and say what an idiot I am. As long as you share it, it doesn't really matter. Share it, share it, share it. Maybe the people who watch it, who see it, are a little bit more intelligent than you'll ever be. That's if you don't like the policies. So you get your ballot paper. It's a metre long. It's a white piece of paper. It's fascinating. There's about It's a white piece of paper that's divided into two by a thick black line. Above the thick black line are all these boxes. I think there's 22 of them. No, 27 of them. I could be wrong by one. And I know there's 22 of them with names of political parties next to them, and there's five boxes with no names, and they're ungrouped independents. Now, take your time. Don't be rushed. Because ultimately, you're going to decide not only who gets into Parliament, who becomes a senator, because that's basically it's structured in such a way that you'll see the major political parties snap up all the, and the my snap up all the Senate seats. It's about letting people know that you want radical change. And if you want radical change, well, I suggest you put one in the box next to my name. If you look at the ballot paper, obviously I'm below the line. I'm not above the line, I'm below the line. And if you go to the far right-hand corner, you like that, that's a bit of a bit of an irony. The far right-hand corner, in the last column, in the ungrouped section, you'll see my name halfway down there. If you... Look, if you like the policies, put one in my box and then put the number two in the box of the of a political party that you think would make a best government. Because a vote for a, an independent is not a wasted vote because we have a preferential system. So if you put a one in my box and a two for the Greens, my vote goes to the Greens. Or if you put it for the ALP or the Animal Justice Party or whatever. But the important thing in the Senate is that if you vote below the line, you need to fill a minimum of 12 boxes with the numbers 1 to 12. Now, I'm not stupid enough to direct preferences. That's your business. You know who you want the next government to be. You know that I'm not going to be elected as a senator. You know that I've got a snowflake's chance in hell of getting my $2,000 deposit back because I'll need at least... Ooh... Forty to 50,000 votes, and I'd need at least 700,000 votes in Victoria to become a senator, and that's not going to happen. But you know, by putting a one in the box next to my name and then filling another 11 boxes of the numbers 2 to 12, that 
you can demonstrate that you've taken the time to think about things, vote below the line and support policies which will make a difference. The ball's in your court. I've done all I'm going to do. The ball's in your court. So don't forget about it. Now, if you're interested in direct action tomorrow, that's right, tomorrow, and if you're listening to this program on the 11th of May, tomorrow the 12th of May, public housing, everybody's business, will be holding a rally on the steps of the Victorian public ha- on Victorian Parliament in Spring Street in Melbourne to highlight public housing as a solution to this country's housing crisis. Now, I've been disgusted, disgusted by the political parties and most of the independents' attitude to public housing. Now, just in case you don't realise this, public housing is not a new concept. It's been here for a long time. 90% of homes in Singapore, reasonably sophisticated society, are public housing. Did you hear that? 90%. 45 to 50% of homes in Germany and many of the Scandinavian countries are public housing. So what do we do in this country when it comes to housing? especially when we've made housing a commodity which is dominated by an investment class which uses negative gearing to minimise taxation and increase their wealth. So what do we do? What do the, the various state governments and the federal government do? They go on an orgy, an orgy of privatising public housing. So what's so good about public housing? And I've spoken about this ad nauseum and I'll speak about it again because there's only a marginal, radical fringe in this country which now talks about public housing. All the charities, all the religious-based groups, all the state governments and oppositions talk about affordable housing, social housing, Community housing, they're all privately owned. Privately owned. And we see state governments pouring billions of dollars into the privately owned community, social, affordable housing sector, which cherry-picks clients. Public housing is about giving everybody who cannot afford to buy a house the ability to live in a secure environment where they can send their kids to the same school. Their kids can grow up with the same friends. They don't have to be worried about be moving on because they're on a rental contract that lasts a year or two. But today, when you use the word public, it's as if you're spitting out devils. It's as if you're spitting in people's faces. Somehow, we've come to the conclusion that the word public means second rate. Well, I'll tell you about second rate public facilities. You find yourself, and hopefully you never do, or any of your relatives or friends do, in a public hospital, critical care unit, 
public hospital intensive care unit and you will see first-rate care, which you'll never see in a private setting unless you've got oodles of money. First-rate care based on need and which would have exactly, exactly the same attitude to housing. So today, you've got a little marginalised, radical fringe, like public housing, everybody's business, defend and extend public housing, friends of public housing, tiny, minuscule groups still holding up a banner for public housing. I'll give you an example. There's a tax called stamp duty on housing. If you buy a new house, say you pay the average a million dollars in an urban setting for some three-bedroom, nondescript, boring, suburban you know, house somewhere, you can be paying up to sixty to seventy to eighty thousand dollars in stamp duty to the state government. So, what does the state government in Victoria do with this seven to eight billion dollars, which, which of stamp duty? Well, they put it into consolidated revenue, build a few more kilometres of tunnel under the ground, with the money which comes through stamp duty on housing purchases. If that was quarantine for public housing, you could house 100,000 Victorians every year. And you don't need massive building programs, building nondescript high-rise buildings which are, which are not the best form of living, but you could spot purchase around the country, around the state of Victoria, around the country. You could spot purchase. So what does public housing do? And this is why, again, another plank of the ideas which I'm bringing to this election, and which I'll continue to talk about ad nauseum for years, is the concept of public housing. What does public housing do? It increases competition in the housing market. Currently, there is no competition in the housing market, as there is no competition to any degree in the financial sector or the banking sector, there is no competition in the housing market. It's all privately based. You increase the number of public houses. You increase the number of people who are housed in public units and public houses. You increase that number. Decrease demand. This is capitalist economics, private investment for private profit. This isn't radical. You decrease demand. For private housing at the lower end, especially at the lower end of the market. And what happens? If you decrease demand, prices drop. If prices drop, rents drop. If people are in secure housing, you eradicate homelessness. You decrease pressures on people to be involved in illegal activity in order to survive. It's a win-win situation for the community, for those who want to buy homes in the private sector, for renters, and for those people who will never be able to access public housing. It is so simple. 
It's part of the emperor has no clothes model. Remember the old fairy tale? You know, everybody, the emperor was walking along, he was in his little, you know, having his uh, good, he didn't have any clothes on. And everybody was clapping, 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 clapping. It was the emperor, isn't it wonderful? The little boy says, the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes on. And before you know it, the emperor became a centre of derision and laughter. It's the same with the public housing debate. Everybody's talking about social housing, affordable housing, community housing, private housing. And the solution to the housing crisis is there. It is there in front of our eyes, but because of ideological considerations, nobody is willing to pick up the ball and run with it. They're not willing. And even those minor political parties that talk about public housing talk about social, affordable housing, not public housing. Let's move on. Australia's cargo cult mentality. You like that? Australia's cargo cult mentality. Well, what am I talking about? A little bit of a esoteric history lesson. Uh, the island of Tanna, in what was the New Hebrides, which is now an independent nation state called Vanuatu, was instrumental in the United States hopping across island hopping across the Pacific during World War Two. All of a sudden, the traditional owners found themselves inundated by planes, which flew into the island and disgorged the most disgorged, I should say, the most amazing technological innovations: cannons, tanks, cars, you name it, food. And the people of Tanner said to themselves, "Hmm, this is interesting." And a belief sprung up among the people of Tanner that somehow these folk had diverted these consumer goods which were meant for them into their hands. And when the United States military left the island of Tanner soon after the end of World War II, not only did they leave a lot of garbage behind, but they left behind this cult. This cult grew up which was named after John Frum, who we think may have been a pseudonym for an Afro-American storekeeper in the US Army. And the John Frum cult was based on the idea that the cargo had been stolen from the people of Tanner, and if they did the right things, the cult will come to the, the cargo would come back to the island of Tanner for the benefit of the people on that island. Now, you may think this is ridiculous, it's stupid, it's ignorant. But when you think about it, we have exactly the same cargo cult mentality when it comes to the things we enjoy in this country. We have forgotten, not only forgotten, but it's been written out of history, the reason we have a minimum wage, the reason we have a public health sector, the reason we have a social security system, the reason we have a public education sector, the reason 
we had essential services owned by the state. We have forgotten. We have forgotten the mountain of bodies, the number of people, the sweat, blood and tears over generations which were required to see these reforms enshrined in legislation in this country. When you look at the current debate regarding the minimum wage and Mr Albanese's promise that the Fed, if he's elected as the next Prime Minister through, you know, for his party if they're elected, that they're going to tell the Fed, well, they're going to advise the Fair Work Commission they support a 5.1% increase in wages, minimum wage because of inflationary pressures. God, I sound like a bloody financial expert here. Well, I'm not. Right. You know, you think to yourself, Wow. Where did this come from? Where did the push for Social Security benefits, old age pensions, disability support pensions, single parents pensions, student assistance, unemployment benefits, public health system, Medicare, pharmaceutical benefit system, national disability insurance scheme, it came after decades of struggle by men, women and children in this country. Intergenerational struggle to ensure to ensure that the cake in this country was more evenly divided. Unknown, unnamed, unremembered people. It wasn't through government. It was through Direct action, people agitating for change. Now, everybody talks about the Whitlam Labor government being a, introducing radical reforms, and they introduced many radical reforms. And why did they introduce radical reforms? Because of the push from the Australian people for them to introduce radical reforms to look after the needs of this country's population. And what has we seen since the dismissal of the Whitlam-led Labor government in 1975 by what some people describe as a CIA-engineered coup. What have we seen? We have seen history turned on its head. We have seen through corporatisation, deregulation, privatisation and globalisation many, many of the things we had won in the past to improve people's lives been rolled back. And who has benefited? That 1% that own the means of production, distribution and exchange, whose wealth has exploded over the last 40 years. Who has benefited? That 10% of Australians who have disposable income and have used this country's investment-friendly laws you know, negative gearing, franking credits, corporate welfare to enhance their wealth at the expense of the rest of the community. That's what we have seen. And what have we seen in this country in the last 40 years, especially in the last 10 years? Growing inequality. Growing inequality. As the gains of the past have been rolled back, 
as people have forgotten that radical change is possible. Not only possible, but desirable. Tied up in issue-orientated politics, we have left economic management in the financial sector in the hands of so-called experts who have enriched themselves, enriched themselves at the expense of their fellow Australians. That's right. Dismissed themselves at their, you know, at the expense of their fellow Australians. Incredible when you think about it. And we have allowed this to occur during this cargo cult mentality period. I mean, the cargo cult mentality period goes to the very beginning of colonisation on the 26th of January, 1788, where we settled. That's right. We settled, all of us, those who are immigrants, we enjoyed the fruits of that colonisation process. We settled this country on the basis of terra nullius, the land of no one. People who had lived here for 60,000 years were killed, raped, dispossessed, had their children taken away, and we ran sheep on their land and got rich, sending wool to the satanic mills. I don't feel guilty about it. But I acknowledge what happened. But this cargo cult mentality, it was just here. We just took it. It it wasn't until 1992 the High Court of Australia found that Indigenous Australians had had rights to land if they had continuous occupation of that land despite colonisation, the Mabo decision, which we will celebrate on the 3rd of June this year, a decision which will be forgotten, forgotten. How important that has has been in terms of reparations. The list goes on and on. So this cargo cult mentality, historical cargo cult mentality has to stop. Unless we understand the past, we don't if we don't acknowledge the past, we, we don't understand what's happening today, we'll have no plans for the future. And that's a dilemma about Australia in the twenty first century. It is a country that has no plans for the future. None. Steady as she goes. Let's the, let the corporate sector continue to, you know, profit from this country's um, natural mineral resources. Let's ensure that inequality increases. Let's ensure that the billionaire club gets bigger. This goes on and on. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. As I said, we're involved in a continuing struggle. The election on the 21st of May is a dot. It's an instant in the life of this country. Parliamentary democracy is based on the, f- on the principle that you cast your ballot and then you shut up for the next three years. You've cast your ballot, you've made your bid, now... Live with it. That's not democracy. Democracy is rule of the people, by the people, for the people, by an engaged public. And that's the key. By an engaged public. On the 22nd of May, we'll be continuing activity to highlight 
the reforms that are needed in this country to ensure the cake is more evenly divided. We will continue that direct action, we will continue those protests, we will continue those petitions, you know, those... And it goes on and on. We will continue. Because the 21st of May is one instant. And what fashions policy, and that's the dilemma we have in this country, we don't actually have a movement in society that is big enough and strong enough to fashion policies which will then be raised at the next election. And what we need to be doing in between elections is being involved in activity to highlight these inequalities, but more importantly, to highlight solutions. Now, those of you who've been following uh, the program I have been initiating as far as the federal election is concerned is it's fully costed, fully costed. Universal basic income, fully costed. Three taxes. Doesn't need revolution, blood in the streets, a guillotine in every square. (laughs) Very simple. A 1% financial transaction tax would raise at least $120 to $150 billion per year. A 1% stock market tax. You could raise at least a half a billion dollars a day on most days trading in the Australian Stock Exchange. Why should people who benefit from franking credit, which is basically a taxpayer gift to people who own shares, not pay a little bit back for a 1% um, stock market transaction tax? And why should corporations which exploit this country's natural resources and mineral resources, why should they pay 70% tax on their profits? I mean... The stuff under the ground belongs to this country's First Nations people and ourselves. So why shouldn't they pay 70% tax on profits, say for any corporation which has assets involved in the mineral industry? You know, Why should we see billionaires flouting their wealth for exploiting our resources, telling us what wonderful philanthropists they are when they make tax-deductible donations to their favourite charities or set up their own little empires to ensure their name continues in perpetuity in this country's history. Why Why should we allow this to occur? The dilemma is that even our language is now so corrupted, and I spoke about this briefly before, it is so corrupted that we have no concept of the type of society we live in. People talk about disadvantage. People are disadvantaged. They're not disadvantaged, they're exploited. They're exploited. I mean, the minimum wage is, I think, $20.22 an hour, something like that. Around $20 an hour. That's $800 a week. How do you survive on $800 a week? They're not, they're not disadvantaged. They're small business. 90% of small businesses will fail in the next five years. 90% of all new business, small businesses fail. Now, a particular policy I've raised, which nobody else has raised, and obviously most people don't raise what I raise, it's very simple. Small business. 
unfair competition against the corporate sector. It is impossible for them to survive. So why don't we increase the taxation threshold of a micro-business that's a sole trader to $70,000? gives them a little bit of leeway to compete. And if you're a small business and you employ 10 or less employees, why not provide, increase the taxation threshold by $25,000 for every full-time member of staff who is paid award or below award wages? Solves two problems. It gives small business the ability to compete against the corporate sector because the taxation threshold is different to the taxation threshold of the corporate sector and it addresses the problem of poorly paid, insecure, part-time, casual work. 40% of this country's workers, poorly paid, part-time, insecure work. No wonder the working poor has become a new class in this country. Because if you're given, as a small business, a taxation advantage for employing somebody full-time and award or above award wages, well, then that's what you do. People say, leave it to the marketplace. If you leave it to the marketplace, you come to the lowest common denominator. Nobody should leave anything to the marketplace. The marketplace, in a private investment for private profit, society is based on the creation of profit. If you don't create profit, you go out of business. Think about it. Let's move on. Lucky last. COVID-19. It ain't over yet. I'll be having my fourth injection in the next few days because I'll be um, up to it. Well, six months are over. It is four months. And why? Because although we have turned to normality, COVID-19 has now become a personal issue. It is no longer a community issue. As a society, we have made a decision, a very important decision, since the introduction of vaccination and some protection for those who are vaccinated, what we have seen is most of the mandates that were in place being removed. Not all, but most. So that means that COVID-19 now has free reign in the community, basically. Look, it's a virus. It wants it to survive like we want to survive. But unfortunately... If you catch the problem, it's not just a matter of the acute phase, but a number of people, about 1% to 2%, get what's called long COVID syndrome. So it is still an issue. The death rate is increasing in this country. Over the last, I think over the last um, three days, 150 people have died of COVID-19 complications. So it's a big issue. Now, obviously, if you don't want to be vaccinated, that's your problem. But it just seems ridiculous to me that when there is protection for something that you don't access that protection. Now, I hate, and again, this is part of that collective amnesia, that cargo cult mentality. To a significant degree, we have an ageing population in this country for one very good reason. And that reason... It's tied up with vaccination, whooping cough, measles, diphtheria, polio, tetanus, smallpox, 
encephalitis, and the list goes on and on. These are diseases which laid the community, laid waste in the community. Anybody who's old enough to remember the polio academics will remember how difficult it was sending your kids to school and then getting sick and ending up on a ventilator for life or an iron lung. So although there are no there are minimal restrictions today, the important thing is that you've got to think of your own health and what you're going to do to protect that health. As I said before at the beginning of the program, an overloaded public health system, we are entering a very difficult time as winter approaches. So think about it. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Scano. Yes, I'm standing in the Victorian Senate election. If you get your Victorian Senate paper, it's a metre long, white piece of paper, black line dividing the top from the bottom. I'm down the bottom, as you'd expect, but... In the far right-hand side of the paper, you'll see my name among six other names. Put the one, if you're interested in the concepts that I've raised, put the one in my box and then mention, and then mark the next box, the boxes from 2 to 12. So you've got to go from 1 to 12 for your vote to be valid. If you're not interested in what I've said, that's fine. You vote the way you see fit. That's what this is about. And if you don't want to vote, well, that's your business. Because ultimately... As I said before, the election is an instant in time. What is important is what we do in between elections, how we continue that struggle. To think that the election is the be-all and end-all of reform and change is a gross mistake. Elections are an instant in time, one day in time. Think about it. If you're, if you're concerned about the situation this country is in today, if you're concerned about your own personal situation, if you're concerned about the situation of your children and grandchildren, you're concerned about the climate emergency, you're concerned about growing inequality, you're concerned about the divisions which are appearing in the society, which are becoming entrenched in the society, then you really need to think outside the box. You can always join public interest before corporate interest. You can do it online. Go to pipsypibci.net. You can get involved in many of the activities that we're involved in. Don't forget, if you're in Victoria, steps to the Victorian Parliament House tomorrow, midday, public housing, everybody's business. And uh, thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public. Share the policies. Share the policies. That's the best way you can help to get these ideas across. And don't forget, YouTube channel, Public Interests Before Corporate Interests. And yes, I do answer mail. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Email me at info at pipsy.net or anarchist or info at anarchistmedia.org. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.